0: And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back, Yvonne.
1: Hi, Jamie. It's nice to be back.
0: Now tell me, what makes the Hask Hair Care brand different?
1: Hask is all about creating, treating, and maintaining gorgeous, healthy hair. We offer complete problem-solution product regimens featuring exotic ingredients from around the world and designed to repair, revitalize, refresh, and restore an extensive extensive range of hair types, everything from argon for repairing, coconut for hydration, keratin for smoothing, to biotin for volume, tea tree for scalp care, blue chamomile for blondes, and hemp for mega moisture.
0: I feel nourished just hearing those ingredients.
1: Our mission is simple, to create high-quality hair care that's carefully sourced, tested for efficacy, and formulated without any of the bad stuff including sulfates, parabens, phthalates, gluten, and aluminum starch. The brand is also cruelty-free and Leaping Bunny certified. And because of our ingredient-inspired fragrances, the products smell absolutely incredible.
0: Well, that all sounds good to me. Thanks for joining me, Yvonne.
1: Jamie, it was a pleasure. And I will leave you and your listeners in the industry with this. The Hask brand welcomes the opportunity to continue building our relationship with the Hollywood styling community. If we can support a project you're working on, send us an email as we'd be happy to help. That's awesome. We can be reached at hask at stonemanagement.net. Thanks again, Jamie. And now, our feature presentation.
0: Today, I'm speaking with makeup prosthetic designer Mike Marino from Prosthetic Renaissance. You would have seen Mike's work on Black Swan, True Detective, and The Goldfinch. Also, Mike and his team are responsible for helping Heidi Klum get ready for Halloween each year. We chat about being mentored by the legend Dick Smith, getting to work with some of his idols, and how he approaches his work now remembering their influences. Pitchers up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, Mike.
2: Hi, Jamie. How are you?
0: Hey, good. Thank you. Now, I would like you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Okay. (laughs) Once upon a time, there was a boy named Mike, and when he grew up, he wanted to be...
2: A guy who had heads on his shelf. (laughs) In a weird way. No, not
0: in a weird way.
2: (laughs) I didn't know what that meant, but I just wanted that.
0: Did you see a picture of it somewhere? Like, what inspired that thought?
2: (laughs) Well, after I saw the Elephant Man film, I was like four Mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. I was completely destroyed by that film. And Mm -hmm. I was so deathly afraid of that film that later on did I realize that it was makeup. And then I found out who did these kinds of makeups. And then I, of course, found out who Rick Baker was when Thriller was out. And they showed the making of Thriller and... I was completely obsessed with Rick Baker and that he had all of these heads on his shelf and Mm -hmm. in the background and Michael Jackson's talking about, you know, this head here and this head here. And I was like, okay, I don't know what this is, but I need that. I need to have that. I want to put it, you know, on my, on my bedroom wall.
0: That is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously you're watching films and getting engrossed in them and trying to probably figure out how it was all done. So when did you actually start getting your hands on some makeup and playing around with stuff? I think
2: the first makeups I did were based on Dick Smith's makeup handbook that Mm -hmm. I got from the library. Yeah. Because once I was, you know, I found out who Rick Baker was, I found out more about, you know, who his mentor was. And I was like obsessed with, okay, who's Dick Smith? And I found out who, who Dick Smith was. And mm-hmm. I happened to stumble upon his um, his book about do-it-yourself makeup. It was a hardcover and it was in the library along with Richard Corson's stage makeup. And I, I rented those books and I basically never returned them. You know, they were constantly <laughs> being renewed like yeah. for for years cuz yeah. we didn't have then you know you know Amazon or something and you know mm-hmm. you can't just order whatever you wanted it was like okay I have to go to the library and I wanted to get those books and not have anyone else have them because I was afraid if someone had them they'd do the same thing I did and never return them so I kept <laughs> renewing the library books over and over again
1: I so that know. lasted
2: a really long time and I think I tried to do, you know, the Dick Smith makeups. And towards the end of the book, Mm -hmm. it gets really complicated. So it took a while to do those. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were really like the first things I ever did. And I was probably, geez, I was probably, I don't even think I was 11 yet. You know, I was, I was already at age, you know, five and six, seven, eight, you know, all those years, like obsessed with makeup. I just didn't know that I could do it yet,
0: you know? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Until I went to the library, you know. So, if their libraries still exist, I think people should still go there because there's things you may discover that you don't even know (laughs) exist, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, I remember going to the library for hair reference for, you know, period stuff and all that type of thing because there wasn't Google. So,
2: yeah, it's awesome.
0: (laughs) So, I'm guessing that you had parents that were pretty encouraging in this situation like helping you find the tools and products and stuff that you needed to create
2: they were encouraging that they kind of left me alone right but they weren't really like okay we're gonna go hike all the way over here and buy this thing you know it wasn't really (laughs) like that it was like okay do not come in my room and if you do I'm going to kill you So leave me alone and let me watch my VHS tapes and analyze and pause every single frame to see what tool Rick Baker's holding. Yeah, You know, so I don't, uh, what's that thing he's spraying with the red handle? What is that? I don't know what that is. I think it's an airbrush. I found out about airbrushing and what Uh, sculpting tool is he using? I have no idea what that is. And and I have to say, I really learned a lot when I found the Berman catalog mm -hmm. back in like it had to be the early nineties where they had like a booklet where they described, gave you a little description on what every material was and kind of did. And I, I literally memorized that manual, that catalog. And I really like learned what you could use before I even used those materials. So slowly over time, I, I graduated into ordering a lot of the materials, even weird stuff, like skin flex and all these urethanes and all this stuff that they don't even make anymore.
0: Mm. so
2: I was like an expert at like just describing to you what could be done you know with what material because I memorized the booklet a manual
0: that's very cool thank goodness they brought that out huh otherwise oh, you man. would have just still been going what is that what is yeah. he using what oh, is that exactly.
2: <laughs> oh and I'd never worked the way you wanted it to work either because the material you'd get you'd be like okay well I ran out of it now I spilled it all over my rug and <laughs> I, I didn't know I could only mix a little bit. I mixed the whole damn thing up and it exploded all over the table, you know. So that's basically oh my like my rug in my bedroom growing up was absolutely destroyed.
0: That <laughs> must have made your mother very happy.
2: Well, they knew I was into it. So they we moved into a new house and they left the old rug in that room because they knew I was going to destroy it. I mean, we're talking about plaster embed into the carpet, completely ruining every bit of that room. Oh my
0: goodness. (laughs) That's awesome. So you're doing this at like 10, 11, 12. Who are you doing makeups on?
2: So I had a friend, his name was Chris, and he went to my school and Hmm. I knew I had to be friends with him because he had an eyeball in his sandwich one day and he was eating and making <laughs> believe it wasn't there. And all the girls were freaking out. And, you know, and I was like, okay, well, what, who is this kid? You know, I, I need to be friends with this kid. So I, didn't, I don't think he thought he was capable of doing any kind of artistic thing. And I was already mm-hmm. so into it. So he was basically my guinea pig, my model for everything, you know. So I had a friend who just wanted to be in makeup so he could scare people. Yeah, yeah. So so I would do everything. I did old age makeups on him and scars and wounds and burns and all these things. And poor kid. I mean, he's definitely, you know, I remember putting a cotton and latex thing on his face and it like literally would not come off. (laughs) I didn't know how to remove it. And it was just like a nightmare. But (laughs) I needed to do that. I think think the best thing I learned is that I had to try it and kind of mess it up Mm -hmm. so that I would know that oh I couldn't do that again it was like this I didn't really quite take notes but I had this really vast memory of what I could and couldn't do and I would always remember
0: yeah well thank goodness for Chris
2: (laughs) I know yeah exactly (laughs) exactly
0: that's awesome so at what point like you go through high school and everything at what point do you start really getting into it as a well is in training or did you just go out to work straight away or?
2: Well, I think I was about 16 at some point And I remember attempting anyway, doing a prosthetic. I think it was like my first prosthetic makeup hmm. from everything from sculpting to molding, to running foam latex and all this stuff. I was about 16 years old and it was terrible makeup. It was so bad. I mean, it was like barely like the foam latex, even held its shape it wasn't even gelled it was you know it was a mess and Mm. it was just really bad nothing worked out the way I wanted it to work out but I guess was halfway decent because I took all these notes on everything that I did and I submitted it into like some Joe Blasco contest that they advertise in like Fangoria Mm -hmm. and they uh and a few months go by and like I basically, I don't know, I think it was like third place, fourth place, something I won. I wasn't I mean, even old enough to enter the contest because they had like a age restriction and I just like uh, lied. I lied or something and, and <laughs> said I was older and, and they gave me some honorary scholarship to Joe Blasco School. And, you know, I was still in high school, you know, I think it was like mm. a junior or something. Or, and, I, and I didn't go. But I was like, OK, this is a little bit encouraging, you know, so maybe I should keep doing this. Yeah. You know, so it was kind of cool that way. And then I was like, you know, I really would love to train with Dick Smith like Rick Baker did because, you know, I was totally obsessed with Rick Baker. Of course. So I found his address in high school and I wrote him a letter, sent him a portfolio and um, he wrote me a postcard back and said, I always remember what it said. It said, Dear Mike, thanks for the extensive portfolio. Please give me a call anytime except dinner, 630 to 730. All the (laughs) best, dick. That was the postcard I got. I think I was like a senior in high school or something like that. And I totally freaked out and was like, okay, this shit just got real. Yeah. Like, oh God, like now I, I was so excited and you know wanted to talk to dick smith i was like i don't even know what to say i was like okay now i gotta be really serious yeah so all my doubts were like kind of like thrown out the window entirely you know and it was like okay well he even looked at my package and my work that i had at that point so Mm -hmm. he must think that i don't want to waste his time so that's how that went
0: so you call him but not at dinner time.
2: Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so awesome, but he was like so specific, you know. It's so specific. And I called him, and he had my book with him, and he went through it with me, and literally stayed on the phone with me. So strange kid, you know, from from New York. I think he was living in Sarasota, Florida at that time. Okay. Uh, stayed on the phone with me for like two hours. Wow. And I didn't ask him about anything like, oh, how did you do this thing in The Exorcist? Or I didn't ask him any of that. It was more Mm. like, okay, I have this problem. I can't get foam latex to gel. I can't do this. So he would go into the reasons why and how to assess how to do that. You know, like, okay, Mm. he used an analogy I remember where – uh, he was in, I think he was in the army or something. And he said, well, you know, you, you're firing at practice and you're, you're launching this thing across the field. And you say, okay, well, that was too far. And then you shoot one again and it shoots really not far enough. So you gauge between the not far enough and the far enough. And where do I need to land in between? That's just like foam latex. I was like, okay, well, that's really cool. So it was like, okay, over gel it and under gel the foam latex. And then you'll find the timing and how to know when to put it in so that you could put it, have time to put it in your molds. So it gels on time. So it was like, it was always an analogy with Dick. Mm. And he would go into these long stories of analogies and it was amazing to hear him speak because, you know, you're spe- it's, it's like speaking to, you know, your grandfather who's like your idol, you know? So it's like he had this really amazing way of describing and helping explain to the strange kid who was interested in makeup how to do a certain thing. And that really kind of changed my thinking and my approach onto how to approach a problem because everything is a problem. Every yeah. single thing is a problem. If it was really easy, then everyone would do it. So mm-hmm. it was really get down to, okay, we know you like makeup and we know you're pretty good. Okay, let's get better. You know, so that was where high school, I really started taking it serious. And I knew that I would send him photographs and I knew that he would be looking at them. So I really started taking it seriously. And he was brutally honest. And that was so helpful You know, uh, you know, and I try to help everybody that emails me or sends me a message or something. I try to be as honest as Dick was honest to me, because that honesty really helps you push yourself. And it also deters people who aren't serious. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a lot of work. It's not exactly uh, glamorous. You know, it's dirty. You're going to mess things up. You're going to waste money, you know, and it was that way, you know, and. I mean, there were things he would say to me like, oh, my God, I really love this. I really love what you did here. And I remember one time they did some makeup and it was gelatin. It was weird, like blue color. And he goes, I don't know what this is. Was this colored with dirt? (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, this is (laughs) killing me. Okay, I will never paint that thing like that. I need to learn about colors and all this stuff. So it was like if he didn't say that, I wouldn't have learned what to do and what not to do yeah you know I would just think oh well he thinks I'm awesome so you know great
0: that's so cool you must have been such a sponge oh my god just oh, soaking completely.
2: everything and, and I found a way to record our conversation so I have a lot of them on tape like uh, my friend <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, my, so cool. my, I, it's so crazy I, I like my friend Chris who I used to practice makeup on mm-hmm. his dad was like a New York City detective and he had all this like spy equipment so oh he, my gosh. Had, he actually had this phone recorder that used to put on the earpiece so that you could record the conversation. So I got one of those from him. And when Dick Smith called or called back or I called him, I would know to go on this very specific phone that I would put the recording on the earpiece and record everything that he was saying. Because I would rewind it and go back and listen to everything that he said just in case I missed what he was talking about.
0: Oh my goodness, that is so amazing. So you still have those (laughs) recordings now?
2: I do, yeah, I do. Oh,
0: that's so cool. (laughs) What an ingenious little child you were. (laughs) My goodness.
2: (laughs) I knew, I was like, okay, he speaks really fast and even though he explains well, I'm totally going to mess something up so I need to literally Mm. memorize what he's saying.
0: Right. Did you at any point let him know that you were recording the conversation? (laughs) Completely
2: not. No, (laughs) no. no chance because I was afraid that he wouldn't want me to do it and sell it or something, you know? So, so I yeah. was like, okay, I, I'm just going to secretly do this. And, you know, I yeah. never gave it to anybody. I mean, I sound no, like this little not. wimpy little dork who doesn't know anything, all oh, laughing and stuff, you know, at stupid jokes and everything. And and I would never want anyone to hear that.
0: <laughs> I know, but it must be so amazing to listen back to it. Like listen to younger you just, oh. Oh. It's and so but you must have been you must have you must sound so excited and passionate and oh it's awesome. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe one day
2: I'll listen to it, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think yeah, you'd be yeah.
0: surprised at how much you actually enjoy listening to it. You'll have a <laughs> smile from ear to ear.
2: <laughs> right. <love it. laughs> I'll dig <take> it out.
0: <laughs> so what kind of did you do formal training at all?
2: No, nothing. I just had Dick Smith talk to me on the phone and that was basically it.
0: Yeah, I mean that's amazing. Full stop, really, isn't it? I mean
2: <laughs> I mean it was I was so obsessed that, you know, at that point I thought that there was no school. I mean there's not really schools. There weren't schools back then really that, you know, were maybe like the schools now. I think the schools now are a lot better and they Mm -hmm. know a lot of things. But back then in the early 90s, it was, you know, kind of limited. And I already had my laboratory in my bedroom and I had Dick Smith. So it was like, what better could I do? You know, I knew Greg Canham and Rick Baker and Kevin Yeager, all idols Mm -hmm. of mine, like Mm -hmm. all trained basically that way Was speaking to Dick and showing him the work and all that. And it's like, well, why can't, I do that. So I'm going to just do that you know and that was really my my own formal training but i did also have the uh, fortune of living like two towns over from meron makeup which they you know you know meron i mean they make mm-hmm. all these tons of makeup and everything and i yeah. worked there when i was 16 i worked in the back like stock area and like i used to fill up all like the containers of makeup on the machines and all these things you know and i did oh, that cool. it was my first job ever Mm-hmm. 16 years old and I used to do that and you know I was like okay well this is makeup so I, I want to be involved somehow I don't want to work at a car wash so yeah. you know I'm going to work at the makeup company you know which was cool because the owner his name was Marty Marty Mellick mm-hmm. he was really cool he let me you know come in when I could after school and learn there and and at the same time he had like a little display room and most of it was like clowns and stuff but he did have appliances that Dick was experimenting with in silicone back in the early nineties. Oh, wow. so, so I was like totally obsessed with looking at that stuff. He had them in a box. Mm-hmm. I think Dick was uh, making like made up like some chins and some noses and things and gave them just so that they could try to find a makeup that could cover the silicone and all these things. It was just sort of an experiment. And I was able to look at all that stuff and feel it early tests of silicone back in the day and, uh, and I knew Dick Smith had a material, a, a grease paint that he would talk about in the makeup course, which was so strange. It was called Mask Cover. It was like a rubber mask grease paint. But I never could get that to ever work because it was so hard and like so stiff that I couldn't get the makeup to come out of it, you know? So it was like, I don't know, something went wrong, you know? So either (laughs) I was using really old stuff, but anyway, but I worked there and I loved working there because it was close to like Dick Smith, you know? So
0: that's very cool. So, did you ever get to meet Dick Smith?
2: I did. I only met him though. He lived in Florida, but I only met him at the uh, makeup artist trade show conventions. And that was a really amazing convention, especially back in the day, because Um, everybody that I idolized was there. You know, they'd show up. It would be, you know, like Kevin. I don't know if Kevin ever went, Kevin Yeager, but I love Kevin Yeager stuff. Tales from the Crypt, all that. But Dick mm -hmm. Smith would show up. Rick Baker would be there. You know, and I remember meeting Dick there for the very first time. You know, and that was a really cool thing that Michael Key put together. He kind of put together this network of people, like, coming and meeting and talking and seeing each other's work and all that. And and it was kind of a -a one-of-a-kind thing, especially in the the late 90s. I think it was 97 or something was the first one. And I went to every one of them every year. So that's when I would kind of see Dick Smith in person other than talking to him on the phone. Um, And that's where I also met Kazu for the first time because – I, I met Kazu on AOL in some like makeup, like chat room or something. And because I yeah. had on my profile, you know, Dick Smith and he you know, was like, oh, you like Dick Smith and blah, blah, blah. And I became friends with Kazu via the internet for, I think it was like 1996 or seven. He just got to America and I've been oh. friends with him for like 25 years
0: now. That's so crazy. But I, That's but amazing. I met, yeah,
2: it was crazy. I would meet him too at the trade show, you know, it was like. Just out of high school, you know, it was, it was really an awesome, exciting time.
0: Absolutely. And it's so amazing that you made these connections, even though back then it was so much more difficult than it is today.
2: Oh, totally. Totally. I didn't live in L.A. I didn't move there until later on, which I did move there. In two thousand, end of 2000, I believe, I moved to L.A. I worked at Optic Nerve Studios. I worked at where they used to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel all those Mm -hmm. TV shows, and I learned a lot from there. And that was the first time I really got to work, you know, with, like, people I idolized. You know, like, Norman Cabrera was there and, you know, all these guys. And I was like, okay, now I cannot fuck up. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) I am working side by side with Norman Cabrera. Holy shit. This is ridiculous. And, like, you know, I didn't – still didn't even know, like, really how to sculpt. I was still learning. So probably the stuff I sculpted was garbage, you know, and somebody had to fix it or something, you know, but (laughs) – but John Vulich owned the company, and it was really awesome that he let me work there. He loved this one mask in particular that I had sculpted. Mm. Um, it was like this demonic-looking half-mask. And he was like, okay, you're hired. Where have you been? And I was like, oh, fuck, awesome. Then I started working there. I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and uh, I
0: think that's so cool. That I mean, so often it, you know, someone gives you that break to just go, I see talent there come with me let's expand on this
2: oh I was so fortunate
0: yeah and having I mean it was so that was your you were in the workshop so you're full-time in there
2: yeah well I worked at a bunch of different places I worked at a guy named Vincent Guastini's studio he did you know a few movies here and there and he's a really funny wild guy who who kind of let in the younger guys do a lot of stuff with him and it was just really fun. I had a lot of fun there. And I would jump around from his studio to Optic Nerve to Screaming Mad George's studio mm-hmm. and, and Rob Boteen's. You know, and oh, I cool. had worked at Rob Boteen's for a few weeks. Uh, and it was like basically the last film that Rob ever worked on, from my knowledge. It was a film called Mr. Deed's. Mm -hmm. I called one day and they picked up, which I always would call, (laughs) you know, I would call everybody. I had Dick Smith's list of studio numbers that he used to give to people that took his correspondence course. But before I had the course, Dick gave me the numbers to everyone's studio and it had everyone on there. You know, I had like, you know, Bart Mixon and Earl, you know, Earl Ellis's company and Kevin Yeager's studio and address and K&B and everybody's numbers were on this like piece of paper that I used (laughs) to hold in plastic and like worship, you know, and I would call these studios every once in a while. So even when I moved to L.A., I still had that list and I called Botines and someone picked up. And I said, Hey, you guys, you know, looking for sculptors. And they said, well, how did you know? And I go, I didn't know. And they go, you're lying. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not lying. I swear. I don't know. I didn't know. I'm just calling. They're like, well, yeah, we are looking for someone. Like, can you come in for an interview? And I said, okay, cool. I was like, what's your name? And blah, blah, blah. And like, I guess they did some research. Mm. And I think, um, someone from optic nerve, like vouched for me, someone in the lab said, Oh yeah, Mike works here at john's violich's so yeah he's not bullshitting so he works there he's good he's young you know go so i went i went for an interview there and i brought my portfolio of everything that i thought looked halfway decent at that time and uh i met with like an assistant of rob's name was uh, chris heater Mm -hmm. and uh and then rob came in i showed him my stuff okay rob will be here soon and rob came and then Rob Bottin came, and you know he's seven feet tall. Basically, he's this huge guy, and he's like, "Hey, man, you know what's up? Uh, you know, I'm Rob," and I'm like, "Yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, I'm Mike," and blah, blah blah. And you know, and I I uh, showed him my portfolio, and um, and I, actually in New York before I moved to LA, I worked at Saturday Night Live. You know, I worked there oh, wow. in 1998, 1999, and uh, the half of 2000. So I had Mm -hmm. some experience with actors and some makeups and things that we did with Louis Zakarian, who's a really cool guy. He's still over at SNL, NBC.
0: Very cool. And
2: and I showed Rob my book. And he goes, oh, SNL, this is cool, you know. He's like you know i told him dick smith he goes oh i'm a huge dick smith fan and there were a few things in my portfolio he was like man that's cool what is that it was like this giant hand i sculpted in a fist Mm -hmm. you know for this movie called jay and silent bob strike back that i did at vincent Guastini's studio yeah like that's really realistic like that's cool man you know he's like okay well when can you start and i was like uh whenever you want he goes can you start right now (laughs) <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, yeah. So I went in for an interview and then I just stayed there for like, for like 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. So
1: awesome.
2: It was nuts. And it was like he was building these multiple different swollen feet for Mr. Deeds. And I sculpted one of the feet or two of them, an appliance and some other swollen foot. And Rob would come in to that room I was sculpting in and sculpt with me. And it was me and Rob spending like hours upon hours sculpting together back and forth. And he would leave. It was his birthday. I remember it was April. He would leave and then come back in. And then Mm. he'd come back in and be like, Okay, hey, this weird life cast I have, is like this really little guy's hands. And I was like, look how the skin is all buckling and it's all weird. He goes, let's try that. So I was like, okay, so I'll I'll try that. So I would try this weird thing and then an hour or two go by and then he'd come back and he'd be like, oh, I liked it better the other way. And then I was like, oh, okay, so I changed it back to the other way. And it was like continuously being worked on for days, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that he was kind of testing me to see how much patience I had before because I learned from Dick Smith and I had like no experience basically up in like working in studios. I was so fresh. So Mm. I worked there and and, uh, Dick Smith told me, never be wed to anything you sculpted. He goes, if you work on something for a week or whatever, a really long time, and then you leave the room and you come back and something tells you it doesn't feel quite right. He goes, don't be afraid to destroy it and do it over. Wow. So I was like, okay, well, that's how you do it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any other way. So when Rob kind of did that to me, I was like, oh, yeah, totally. You know, no offense. I don't care. I'll wreck it. I'll start over. Yeah. And that was continuous. And I think he really liked that because it was. Re- I was really open to receiving that kind of direction.
0: Yeah, and just being open to that change because, I mean, that that's a hard thing for some people to deal with. Totally. Like, they're just like, no, what do you mean? Ah, it's yeah, exactly. perfect. Leave exactly. it. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Completely. And I, and I had that mindset forever. I still have it because mm. I am not afraid to change something even at the last minute and i still do that to try to make it as good as possible you know even on our tight deadlines we have now like literally i'm still changing stuff if i have to like the night before you know Mm -hmm. so and i learned that from dick smith and i learned that from Botine. and then he never did another show really and he kind of retired after that and we talked so much he would tell me about um stories from the thing and the howling and all these things and mm. also about how this company owed him money and he wasn't going to show up with this stuff and they were kind of messing with him and he was really kind of getting fed up with you know the financial situation of it all because they didn't pay him and they owed him money and he came in one morning and said you want to go to aspen I was like fuck yeah cool I'll go <laughs> he's like I I was like why he's like oh this foot stuff I, I don't want to go and he goes, you know, they owe me like thirty grand. And if they don't pay me, I ain't showing up with this shit. So, yeah. like, okay. And he goes, Do me a favor, sculpt the end of this foot really thick, like a half inch thick. And I go, okay, why? He goes, because I don't want them to think that they can shoot it like a makeup. It has to be like a sock. So the guy could Adam Sandler could slip it on his foot and it would be like a they, they can't pull up his leg further than, you know, this certain point. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. so I sculpted this really thick edge, you know. And that was basically, I don't even know if it was in the movie. I can't, <laughs> you know, it's, it's shown so quickly. It's like this frostbitten, swollen foot that's all yeah. you know, black and stuff. And it's really crispy looking. But I don't know if that's the stuff we made. I just don't know who filmed it. I don't know who did it. I have no idea. And that was kind of the last I've spoken to him.
0: Wow. But how amazing to have these opportunities, like, God, so exciting. And to think now that I mean, you're in a position now that I'm sure plenty of talented artists coming up, look at your work. And I just say, Oh, man, I got to get in the room with Mike Marino. This has got to happen.
2: Oh, that's, uh, it's an honor. You know, I mean, it's really something I'm trying to follow in a tradition of, you know, because people helped me and I'll help people too. I mean, but there is a lot of competition mm. and you have to try so hard at what you do because there's someone next to you that's really good and really trying harder. So I really have to choose who really wants it the most, you know? So, yeah. you know, it's not anything personal and there's a lot of people that try and, and I try to always advise, always, always. I never take one email and turn it down. You know, if I yeah. see it, I respond, you know, just like Dick did. But I learned so much. And years later, you know, when Dick passed away and I lost touch with Rob, mm-hmm. I was like, man, like that's really hyper rare, you know, mm-hmm. for anybody to do and take time and, you know, explain their thinking processes. And that's really, really rare. It really didn't come along much later on. You know, I thought, oh, everyone's like that, but right. nobody was like that. Yeah. You know, and even with Boteen, it was, a, a, even though I learned a lot of artistic things with him, I learned business. Even in these small stories, he would talk to me about getting screwed over and mm. make sure you have a contract to make sure it says this, and a lot of it was business, You know, so even though all we really all want to do is be artistic and try to deal with, you know, what we're dealing with, whatever kind of makeup it is, whether it be, you know, beauty makeup and any of it, you still have to delegate and learn how to do business because we can get taken advantage of. We can get screwed over, you know, and I even knew that Dick Smith got screwed over and Rob Bottin got screwed over and it was like, okay, I really need to learn business,
0: too yeah well, that's really important it is and just the whole management of people as well i mean absolutely you know we're all creative artists and then on top of it if you have a company like yourself or heading departments or whatever there's like people management going on in the middle of all of that and you're dealing with people who are creatives and who are artists and i feel like sometimes that people management can be a little more sensitive sometimes because of that <laughs>
2: hundred percent, you know, and I have to look at it in a realistic way. I mean, as sensitive as I can be and understanding, I'm also like, oh, hell no. (laughs) You're not doing that. And Mm -hmm. no, goodbye, you know, (laughs) to be the way, you know, in the end, the producer, Mm. he doesn't know or care that I have, you know, 10 to 20 people working for me. It's, you know, Mike Marino gets the blame if something goes wrong. Or mm-hmm. Mike Marino gets the credit if, you know, it looks good, you know, so mm-hmm. I really try everything I do to sculpt myself, to glue on myself, to paint myself, to figure out all of that. And when I can't, I have very few selective people, you know, guys like Mike Fontaine and people who I know I can trust and mm. to delegate certain things I cannot do. And I love hiring really good artists. But they really have to adapt to the way I need it to be done because I operate like Dick Smith used to tell me how to operate and how to and I operate how Boteen would tell me how to operate. So I have a thing in my studio that I can sculpt something and I ask, hey, Mike, why don't you work on it for a little bit and then I'll work on it. Or if he's sculpting something, I will jump in and sculpt something on top of his sculpture. So it's like completely like this is a team thing. None of mm-hmm. this is personal. I can Mm -hmm. jump in and absolutely scratch up Mike's sculpture or someone's sculpture, wreck it, move it around. And he can do the same for me if he feels like that it could be better. You know, so we kind of have a open thing there. And I like to have people that are open to that kind of thinking because in the end it's a team thing and it is not a egotistically driven thing. We're providing a product that mm. needs to look as good as possible and my studio operates that way so if someone takes offense or is that kind of touchy kind of thing, then it may not be a person for me yeah you know, because rob would do that rob would come in and just smear stuff around and john vialich would do that at optic nerve he would go over to every single person's station with mm. his cigarette in his mouth <laughs> and go over and smear around the sculpture with his fingers and thumbs and smash it up and move it around and i tell you everything i've seen him adjust looked better yeah john had this very hands-on touch about his work that seems organic that i picked up on and i always thought that was the way but later on did i know that every you know a lot of people are very touchy and don't touch the sculpture and it's
0: Mm. I can't
2: operate that way. I learned from John. I learned from Rob. I learned from Dick how to do that that way. And that's what I still do.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's being adaptable, isn't it? I mean, you have to, you have to. And I love, I love that it's such a team collaboration in your workshop. That sounds awesome. It's fun.
2: It's stressful too. I mean, there's a lot of things that I do that, you know, business wise, Mm-hmm. that pulls me away from the creative side of my brain and it's very difficult. So I've really learned to sculpt and to deal with things while having conversations, <laughs> you know, so I'll mm. have, I'll be sculpting at my table and have, you know, you a know, person in the office come in or someone from the shop and stand at the doorway and go, okay, this, 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 and this, and I'm still working talking about it, mm. you know, so I've literally adapted to working that way and being distracted constantly because yeah you you cannot sit in a room for five hours two hours hours without being distracted or a question being
0: asked yeah it's really just that hard. multitasking yeah and you're wearing different hats i mean you're the artist you're the manager you're the you know you're the business guy you're the money man you're the <laughs> it's just like so a- many
1: hats
2: juggling absolutely. Completely. And I learned over the years, I'm like, you know, as you're younger, you're like, oh, well, that makeup sucks. I don't like that. That doesn't work. It's like, as I got older, I'm like, oh, I can't judge anybody's work because who knows the circumstance they were in? Who knows if they had Mm. two days to make this? Who knows if their foam latex failed? Who knows if the producer was an asshole? Who knows if they never paid him? You know, it's like, okay, well, I am very sensitive to people's work and we all know everyone tries their best yeah so you know that's the way it is you know and i just try my best that's all i can do
0: well i think your best is pretty good mike so (laughs) you're doing okay (laughs) And,
2: and, and we've worked together too before a couple times
0: we have and it's
2: always a pleasure i love working with you and i learned things from you watching you cut hair and seeing what you did with our last test that we did in la uh on some project that I can't mention, but, but but it was awesome. And, you you know, and I could see right away that, Hey, do you want me to cut this? Hey, do you want? And I was like, Oh, I could totally work with you. It's Mm. not saying you're not sensitive, you know? So, okay, great. Oh yeah. Can you thin it out more? Can you cut this more? Can you do that? And it's like, and, and look, standing back, I'm a pain in the ass. I realize it. I torture wig makers I torture everybody
0: <laughs> I didn't feel tortured at all I'll okay. just let you know
2: that. <laughs> but I do I know that I do I torture everybody but it all serves the purpose of can you do this as best as you can and give me the option of changing it and adapting to what we need mm. you know so anyway it's great working with you <laughs>
0: Um, So let's talk about some of the work that you have done over the past few years, because I mean, your resume is pretty incredible and what's been coming out of your studio. So you have a company. Let's talk about how the company started, Prosthetic Renaissance. How did that start?
2: It's a really interesting story. Um, In 1997 or 1998, Mm. I got a recommendation from Tony Timpone, the editor of Fangoria magazine at the time, to meet these directors, they were young guys, and they were doing a film, this director, he was doing a film, him and his producer, and would I be interested in doing the effects for it? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh yeah, totally, you know, then I met the director, he came to my house, which my lab was still in my parents' house, in my Mm -hmm. bedroom, (laughs) So, so it was, I think it was 97. I hadn't mm-hmm. I hadn't like moved into you know this garage area that my dad had built specifically for me because yes, he was an awesome guy. Um, but he also built it to get me out of the house because I was fucking up his house. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> so I had this little garage and all that, which was built later on. But uh, in ninety seven I was still in my parents' house in my bedroom. So I had these young guys come over, uh, three people. It was director produ- and two producers, and we went over the script and the effects, and I gave them a breakdown. and I think it was like this ridiculous thing. I figured out how to break down. I mean, I priced out everything from like Vaseline to like fucking everything. It was so ridiculous, <clears throat> you know. But it was Eli Roth. It was the director, (laughs) Eli Roth, and he was a young guy starting to make a movie. He's trying to make this movie called Cabin Fever, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, which became kind of like a big success for him and all that. And I think he ultimately went to L.A. and used somebody from K&B shop or something. And and that Mm -hmm. was their relationship because he was from New York and was trying to make the film in New York. Uh, Right. And then couldn't and then moved and did their film like, you know, out west or something. I don't even know. Mm -hmm. But I didn't do it. I didn't ultimately do it. And but but I knew that if I did do the job, I was probably going to get some check. And maybe it was 10 grand. Maybe it was 20. Maybe it was 100 grand. I didn't know what it was, you know, so I was like, okay, well, I can't put it, you know, to my name so i'm just going to create this corporation this little company hmm. and i call the prosthetic renaissance and it basically was just in case i got a job i could have checks written to that company ah. you know? and that basically company sat dormant for like years until i got mm-hmm. like a real job on my own but i had already set it up with an accountant and all that kind of thing
0: i was ready to rock and roll so what was the first job that prosthetic renaissance did
2: Uh, The first job I actually completely handled was in 2004, or three or four. It was a film with Willem Dafoe. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was called Animorph. Okay. And it was a New York director named Henry Miller, and the production designer was Jack Degovia, and who Mm -hmm. was the president of the Art Directors Guild. He was also a production designer for Die Hard and all these movies. Yeah. And... They had called me somehow. I don't even know how they got my name, but they got my name. I went in for an interview and I and read the script and there were like these fake bodies in it. Mm. And uh, I went to the first meeting. It uh, was with the director and it was with Jack because, you know, he was the artistic eyes. So he was like, okay, well, mm. you know, let's, let's see who we have here. So I think they were interviewing like makeup people, makeup effects people. And I went in and I brought this fake head that I had made of my friend
1: Mm. And I
2: came in and director, oh, hey, nice. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was like, eh, you know, this is a bullshit meeting. We don't care, you know, whatever. And then they saw this head that I made. And then they were like, oh, wait a minute. What is this?
1: Like, what the <laughs> hell
2: is this? And I had done this little like half head that I did all the hair work. I punched all the eyebrows. I painted it. I did everything mm-hmm. to it. And Jack Degovia, the production center, looked at it and was like, holy shit, this is really realistic. I I can't even tell that it's fake. And, you know, I knew he had a good eye. Mm. So I left the meeting. Nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And I gave them a budget. And and supposedly, from what I know later on, is that my budget was higher than everyone else's budget. And Jack had come into the meeting with the producers and he goes, okay, if you want the cheapest person, then hire them. He goes, Mm -hmm. but if you want the best stuff, I think you should hire this kid. And he goes, because that kid isn't, you know, he goes, that head that he made and he brought in here was not a fake head. He goes, that was art. And he goes, Mm -hmm. and that is the future of this business, that kid. And I was like, holy shit, that was so nice. You know, Yeah, yeah. he told me later. And And that was what really drove them to hire me to do the job um, because of his vouching for me and saying that, oh, you know, this kid's going to do an awesome job for us. And they were all – it was like a passion project for them. They had like a great DP and a great production designer and it was like a really low-budget film, Mm. which was a cool movie. It was a little weird, you know, but it was like seven. It was like a movie that – it was about a serial killer who like used body parts and things for his art, kind of like made like Francis Bacon type art yeah, yeah, out yeah. of body parts, <laughs> you know, and they shot it all cool and weird. So there's a guy that was like completely dismembered and they're like hung from the ceiling and and then the shadow of the body parts cast this other image on a wall. And it was all this weird shit. Mm. And I built all this stuff. Uh, in my new garage that my dad built, and we made these hyper-realistic nude bodies, three of them, for the film. And it was literally just me, my friend Jerry Constantine, and one other guy that was friends with Jerry, his name was Tim Jarvis. He came out for a very small period of time to help seam the silicone bodies with us. And it was literally 17 hour days, seven days a week, all through the holidays, everything that me and Jerry killed ourselves to make these bodies for. And that was the first job we did. And it was cool because the bodies still look pretty good. You know, we tried our best, all the culmination of all the years of learning and all that paid off. And that was the first job. And ever since 2004, I don't think I've spent longer than like a month without a job.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, yeah, your resume shows that you've been busy and doing some amazing stuff.
2: I'm really tired, Jamie. Stop it. I'm so tired. That I'm so burnt out. You don't even know.
0: <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> this, 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 <laughs> let
2: me tell you, this this break we're all having
0: yeah. is
2: so it's good for me. Thing. Yeah, Because I – For the first time in fifteen years, I am alone and quiet, and going to the gym and just enjoying my life for a second.
0: Yeah, living life. Anyway, (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) (sighs) You like exhale. Oh, seriously. So, but I, I just wanted to get into the beautiful aging work that you have done on multiple actors. Like Ewan McGregor, Ben Stiller, Kristen Wiig, Nicole Kidman, Jennifer Connelly. Who else am I missing? Oh, uh, the, the aging that you did on The True Detective. That was a great situation wow. also. I enjoyed. Yeah. But I, I feel like you, I mean, I don't know if you have a favorite thing that you do, but I, I feel like your realism stuff, is that what you would call it? Yeah, I guess so. Is pretty phenomenal. Thanks so right. much. Thank you. I mean, it's, it was the harder thing to do. I I would imagine if you've got something like creature gore, which I'm not saying is easy, through to you know trying to do those subtle aging lines on somebody. It's it's this you right. know, It's a real talent, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think they're all you know difficult in their own specific way. You know, mm. whether it be a fantasy creature or something strange or, um, or a hyper-realistic thing, I think, um, I think are just the choices that uh, we make as artists to kind of discern the best approach. And that's definitely something I learned from Dick Smith because I love Dick Smith's fantasy stuff, You know, things like Ghost Story and things he did that were not hyper-realistic age makeups. I think the fantasy work that he's done was so cool too, just as good, but he just didn't have the chance to do many of them we take each job the same. We treat it the same, you know, whether it be hyper realistic thing. Okay. What's the best approach? Uh, Mm -hmm. If it's a creature or some weird you know, effect, what's the best way to do it? And do we have time? Do we have a budget to do it properly? So we really try to break it down as to what the approach will be and just kind of like Dick would do, you know, like just okay, we can get away with this. I don't want to have buckling in this eye area, so the, I don't want to put an appliance there or I have to do a really super soft piece in that area so it moves better. So it's, everything is thought out. Every piece of clay that goes on a life cast is thought about. Everything. Mm-hmm. So, was, for example, on True Detective, you know, we matched every single crevice line. We made those areas that would naturally form wrinkles, you know, you take a life cast and you like get a dark, you know, one light and then you draw like pencil lines on like everything that you see that they may be like an inclination that there may be a wrinkle on. Mm. So I go like, well, obviously that's going to move there. So I better follow some form of pattern of my sculpture to fit inside those areas. So when the guy or girl moves their face and they squint and move that the sculpture can be thin in those areas or not have anything in those areas so that the, the movement isn't hindered by the appliance. And I think that's so important to approach it that way because it's not just me showing off this cool sculpture that I did. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a moving sculpture. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a real art form that is one of a kind. It is a moving sculpture on an actor, most of the time, a famous person, who mm. is hypersensitive about their face anyway. Mm. So, can it look real? Will it not hinder them? All these things, you know, go into my mind on designing a makeup, especially an old age makeup or mm. any kind of makeup. So, it's it's approached in that sense. And the fantasy thing, I mean, I approach the same way, you know, will it move? Can I get away with being super thick sculpture here? Or can I get away with it? You know, and guys like, you know, Steve Wang and, and, you know, guys at ADI and all that, like they really know where a suit is going to bend and move. And Steve Wang has all these awesome tricks on, you know, if a guy leans over, he has to put this certain plastic ribbing inside so it doesn't crease and buckle in a weird way and all wow. those guys figured out all this stuff so it's like it could come completely you know same materials different mindset of approach you know so but i i just try my best you know and assess it one by one you know And i think yeah. that's all we can do because we usually do get pigeonholed by producers or by filmmakers but you know, I, I would love to make weird creatures and fantasy stuff and all that, you know, just sometimes get more jobs, to do realistic makeup, you know, so.
0: Yeah, I think it. it what you were saying about when you are, you know, you've done that cast and you are just, like, what are you, you're just enhancing what could already be there as far as aging goes instead of redesigning the face.
2: Yeah, right. And then there's also that I always leave the window open to, okay, yes, I need to be here and I kind of need to be strict in a sense, but at Mm -hmm. the same time, how far can I possibly push it in Mm. design so that I can get away with more drama? So drama is so important in designing a makeup how many seconds is this going to be on camera? Can I get Mm. away with more? Or is it going to be something that's filmed in close-up for, Mm. you know, 40 shooting days? You know, like, uh, you know, Rob Bottin, he would sculpt a crazy thing that there's no way it's going to move good, but Mm. you're only going to see it on film for half a second. So I'm going to sculpt this crazy neck that's exploding and weird, you know, that'll never move properly, but it's designed to Impact. be shot in a certain way. Yeah. And how far can you mix aesthetically pleasing, crazy stuff with within a boundary of realism? You
0: know oh, that's very cool. Hey, now something that caught my eye on your website was a makeup that you did on the goldfinch with the the scalp shaving with the wound, like the stapled wound oh, right, right. on it. That just looked beautiful. And as a hair hag, I was wondering, <laughs> I just wanted to just, I was just like zooming in on it going where and how, cause I know that you put that piece over top of the actress's existing hair, like wrapped it flat on the side, but then is the other half actually her hair?
2: Yeah, it is. So I live casted the girl with her hair completely tied up tight into a ponytail at the top. So mm-hmm. I put a bald cap over that and just didn't flatten her hair. I just put a hole in the bald cap, I pulled the hair through a ponytail in the back. I life casted her that way so the hair was already kind of tight, really tight. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't want to put her in the life cast through like, you know, an hour long process of flattening her hair because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it yet. So we tied it in a ponytail, did a bald cap, life cast her that way. And on top of that life cast, we shaved down the hydrocal plaster part uh, a significant amount, maybe a quarter inch or a little bit less, maybe an eighth of an inch down further. Because silicone Mm. stretches, Mm. unlike foam latex, which shrinks and you have to have something larger, silicone stretches when it's thin. So if you sculpt something and then cast it in silicone, it may be in a different location when it's really thin and soft later and not line up. So knowing that going in, we shaved down the girl's life cast significantly to compensate for that possible stretching. And then I sculpted a piece on the one side that, uh, first I did a Photoshop, just to show the director of the design, get some ideas. And then I had sculpted the piece on that shaved down life cast and then took the piece off put made him a syntactic epoxy mold which is the Mm -hmm. most accurate and less shrinking of a mold material Uh, made the sculpture and then a guy that works for us and izzy galindo he um, was one of my students who we kept in the studio because he's really talented he did these tiny little bumps of texture on my sculpture Because to be honest, the texturing thing, like I can't focus on it anymore. I mean, I've done so many times and there's guys that just are girls. They're so good at doing textures that I just don't have the patience anymore. I'm I'm like dealing with like a fire being put out Mm. somewhere and it's like, okay, well, you can do this really well and I'll be supervising it. So you texture it so i usually have that happen so izzy textured that piece with these little bumps like as if the head was shaved he Mm. did this really beautiful job and then we made a mold we cast it in silicone now i have my piece piece i pre-painted quickly i do when i life cast i do like a color sample with silicone uh, to make sure and i photograph it i make sure that the color is in the realm that i want it to be so we cast the piece out i knew it would be a certain color I knew the opacity needed to be a little bit more because from underneath, if you're covering dark hair of any kind, it's going to show through the silicone. Mm -hmm. So it can't be too translucent. So you have to play around with it. And in order to do that right, it has to be the right level of opacity. And then what we did was Izzy also had punched in one-by-one hairs into the Mm. silicone piece to a certain point. And cut it really short. So I had multiple versions of appliances that were half head pieces that were ready to go. And then on the day, I and Ma- Mandy Lyons, a uh, hairdresser, great hairdresser, flattened her hair with me along with the you know with the actress. We flattened it in a very specific direction, down and up and over, and on a very specific line. She kept shifting the line, the part in the hair, where the appliance ended. So when it was flattened, I said, okay, move the gaff quad hair flattening part over just a quarter of an inch more. Mm-hmm. So we lined up the piece with her hair so exactly, and the hair was flattened. The hair flattening took about an hour. Mm. So once that was done, I knew I could glue that piece right over that uh, uh, before that i sprayed skin illustrator over the gaff to blank out as much as i could her dark hair color yeah so i didn't want it shining through so i did that and then i put the piece over it glued it on blended it matched paint and once that was all done we made uh, izzy made a little piece very small strip of red hair mm. that was maybe one inch wide or half an inch that sat on the edge of that appliance and combed into the rest of her hair.
0: Right, so like a lace piece or a yeah. silicon piece with here. Oh, a lace. Yep, piece.
2: it was a lace piece that we cut all the lace off of it entirely, and it was like mm-hmm. just where it faded, where it needed to go. So that yeah. just was an extra bit to tie in the blend.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful.
2: Thank you. It was <laughs> tricky, and lucky we had a great young actress who uh, was, you know, patient to have us kind of stretch her head around and blow dry it and you know
0: flatten it and then glue over it (laughs) I'm sure once she saw it she was like yep that was worth it
2: (laughs) Uh, It was really crazy she loved it and uh, it was disturbing people were really disturbed on set and it was had an emotional impact so that's what we try to do you know we try to help the story along and not really showcase too much of our skills and try to blend in with the story you know and uh, and have it be as real as it needs to be in the tone of the film you know so that's an Another thing too is the tone of the film if the film was like you know terry gilliam thing you know obviously we can go like crazy you know mm-hmm. but if it's something that's in a setting of the tone of the film is hyper realistic then we have to stay within that boundary you yeah. know. so uh so we did it and it actually is really cool it looks like this cool punk hairstyle you know i
0: was gonna say she looks like the the ultimate punk that's you know <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Had her had her head cut open and she stapled it back up and she's back off to the gig to, right. to party. Yeah. Awesome. It amazing. Love it. Love it. Now tell me, how did you get involved with Martin Scorsese with the Irishman?
2: Uh the Irishman. That was Nicky Lederman who was department heading the job and I've worked mm-hmm. with Nicky Lederman on uh I think the first job we did was Boardwalk Empire. I had done the pilot with Martin Scorsese. I'd done all the effects for that pilot and I had done the first a series of effects for the first season and I think a portion of the second season and then I ultimately left that show It was due, a great show. Due to, you know, just being busy and whatever. Yeah. So I worked with Marty before and we got along and, you know, I had made a fake body for Boardwalk Pilot and um, mm-hmm. he loved the body. I had it, like, in my car and he kept asking me to take it out and, like, show <laughs> his friends and put it on the floor and, you know, they were all, like, looking at it. Um, so so uh... he knew me And uh, liked me, and he was awesome. I mean, that director is so cool. On the first Boardwalk Mm -hmm. meeting I had, I sat in his office with him, and um, he was like, okay, what do you think this should be? And I said, well, I think this should be like this and this and this. He goes, well, okay, yeah, I like that. I like that. And then I said, what about this one? What about this killing? Oh, you know, I'm never going to show it. I'm going to show it from behind, and blah, blah, blah. He knew everything he was already going to film. So we kind of designed Some of the things in it, like, oh yeah, okay, cool. So we'll focus on these few things, Mm
0: -hmm. and he
2: knows he's not going to shoot this, and we know we need a body to be inside this fishing net, and it's going to come out of the water and land and perform in a very specific way. So I was like, man, that's really cool. Like he's asking me what I think
0: Mm
2: because I think that's a good director. That's someone who's like, okay, I'm hiring good people. I'm hiring experts. What do they think? Sometimes that doesn't happen and sometimes yeah. that doesn't work, you know, mm. but I think that he's hired some really great people over the years. And, uh, I thought that was really cool. But, uh, but Nikki Lederman was doing the Irishman and, um, there are a few makeups that, you know, they could handle and they could do themselves. And I was only really responsible for one makeup in that film, which was, um, a guy named fat Tony Salerno, which, uh, mm-hmm. an actor, Dominic Lombardozzi had played, and he was a really good actor and had this really cool specific voice. And, uh, but he was playing an older person. He was playing like a 65 to an 80-year-old guy. And even though the acting is great, there's only so much you can do without prosthetics mm. or some kind of effect to change that. So, uh, so Marty let us do that and then we did a test. And on the test, uh, the actor came up to Marty And he's like, "Hey, man!" And and Marty was really confused, and he was like, "Yes, can I help you?" And he said, "No, it's me. It's me, Dominic." And he's like, "Dominic, holy shit!" He goes, "Holy shit!" (laughs) He goes, "That's great. That's great. That's great. Okay, perfect." And then we made no changes. (laughs) So that's how that worked.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I was so lucky. And then
2: we did this really crazy, elaborate makeup in the film, and they filmed it, you know, pretty good amount. And it was fun. It was fun to work on that film. It's a great film. The production design is amazing, and. it
0: was great that's pretty cool hey now I just with that film being I mean notable in its use for the digital de-aging stuff and then I guess for years makeup effects artists have kind of had that fear of being replaced by CGI I'm sure people have moved away from that fear now as we kind of find our practical footing in a digital era but have you done a project where you know that your work will have digital adjustments done Mm -hmm. to it afterwards Mm -hmm. um does that affect the way you design the prosthetic or the makeup
2: yeah well i make believe digital effects don't exist yeah so if rick baker can do a makeup amazing back in the day, or if Rob Bottin or Stan Winston or Kevin Yeager could do like a killer realistic makeup back in the day before digital effects, then why can't I? Even though our cameras are crazier and all that kind of thing, it just drives you even more to try not to mess it up and to plan more. So I make believe they don't exist. So that's the approach I always go with, you know, because I know I've done makeups where you can't tell where the edge is or you you can't see it. So why would I need to rely on a VFX company to, to fix that? So if it needs to be fixed, I'm all for it, but that's in a circumstance not due to negligence. Mm -hmm. So, and not due to design, that may be something like an actor totally fucked it up Mm -hmm. or the paint totally came off of it or it ripped or someone wasn't careful with it or the mouth was torn because they left the guy in the makeup trailer for 20 hours before they filmed him, which mm-hmm. happens all the time.
0: Yeah, you know, And you, then we like, we've got two minutes to get this. And you're like, I'm sorry, what now? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. You, a, guy, a guy or girl, they're sitting in a makeup trailer. You do a makeup early in the morning. They're sitting there for 10 hours. And then they go to set and they film this hyper close-up. It's like, mm. hey, assholes, you're fucking this up. You're deliberately <laughs> fucking this up.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: so, but they don't care. They don't care right. and most of the time don't listen. So thank God there's digital things when you need it. But you can't mm-hmm. go in designing something quickly or haphazardly knowing that, oh, it's just going to get fixed digitally later. I think that's a fail in design and, that's, and we sh- are better than that. We, yeah. we, we, should not rely on that. So Absolutely. we should be saved by that because that's a tool to help the illusion, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's great things like taking lace away that we can't take away sometimes or something happened, a shininess or whatever, like those are awesome things. And I know Bill Corso has this really cool digital company that he supervises because he's a makeup person. And mm-hmm. sometimes the digital people don't, see what we see
0: yeah so having a, a person, different understanding isn't it
2: right he knows what he's looking for like oh the lace here or the edge of the appliance or the coloration or so that's awesome if bill is on your movie doing digital fixes you know that 99.9 percent of the time it's going to look like eat, make your work look even better
0: you know so yeah. is uh, that something you've ever been involved in in post-production is
2: not really yeah. i mean i would love to maybe in the mm. future but i i you know i, I I haven't had too much need for it, to be honest. Yeah. Even though I would love to post edit the movie, but I've, <laughs> uh, you know, you know seriously, like look at all the makeup mm. scenes. I always ask and I always say, please, can I see the footage before you put it to print?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, because I have the eye to see where my errors may be. And maybe yeah. someone else doesn't. But once you wrap, you just, sometimes you just disappear and they don't You're, care. Right and there's a deal with some visual effects company that they have already in place that they don't care and they don't show you anything later. So it's yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's so re- just moved on. Really difficult and I feel like that that's an issue that we all need to be involved with a little bit more like how can we make our work look as good as possible and to help production instead of hinder it.
0: Keep that communication open right through. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um <laughs> so, so I'm just wondering like have you done a makeup that as I when I was saying before about being adjusted afterwards, I guess it's kind of like those makeups that are a, a mash of both. So you do the practical, but then, you know, from the get go that the design and post is to add something visually like effects right. afterwards. Have you had an experience with that?
2: Totally. Yeah, just did. A few times in the past, but the most recent one was a TV series with Mark Ruffalo. It just came out. It's called I Know This Much Is True. It's a very intense, kind of depressing, strange series.
0: Oh, with Derek. Yep. Went, yeah, with Derek. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and you
2: know Derek. You worked with Derek with me in, the, in New Zealand. Which was a really cool thing for me, even though you're probably bored of New Zealand, but (laughs) I love New Zealand. Um, I'm glad. (laughs) But but we did uh, did, uh, all the effects for Derek's series, that he directed all of them. It was very difficult. Filming upstate New York in the middle Mm -hmm. of nowhere and some, you know, nameless actors were extremely difficult and some were really amazing. Obviously, Mark is amazing, you know, and mm-hmm. it was great. But I had designed one thing where he supposedly cuts his hand off in the film. And I knew I suggested to them, hey, why don't we do this? You know, go through the screen. I said, why don't we do this? I, I hate when you see an amputated thing and it looks like a guy is holding this glove over his fist (laughs) you know it's been done in the past over the years Um, and his
0: arm looks weirdly long
2: yeah really long (laughs) and it's rarely done it's rarely done these days but it's it happens especially for tv so i said let me design this thing where we can life cast mark's arm bent and then i can sculpt this stump on the end of it to look like it's really amputated and then we can erase the bottom of his hand off entirely uh via you know digital help Okay. You know, so that was designed that way, knowing going in that they were going to erase his own hand. So how they do that, they would film a clean plate or something, and then have and film that over and over again. And back in the day, it used to like be on a motion control camera, where Mm -hmm. you used to have to have the camera locked and on a computer, and then film each single take the same camera motion, so that you can film a blank one and then film the one with the actor, and then you have the exact information for where you need to erase. But now with tracking software, they can just film it you know, similar, and then they could find the place in the background that they need to erase for those frames. So it's really mm-hmm. cool cool technology. But uh, yeah, we did that for him and we erased his hand. And that was a collaboration going in. And I had also done some euthanizing makeups for not killing people, but making people younger Mm. to make them look more youthful. So I had made some uh, appliances for some older actors to uh, completely wipe out any like hanging skin or folds, uh, some eye areas, some cheeks, things like that. I filled in a lot of areas to take away the wrinkles, and make them look younger. And then later on, digitally, they enhanced that even more. Oh, wow. So that, and Derek loves to photograph what he's doing. So he doesn't like having a completely digital entity there mm. because he can't see it and he can't feel it and all of that. And he's a very emotional filmmaker that way. Yeah. So we did that and the visual effects guy just kind of swiped up a couple other areas and then they used it and it was minimal digital work. And that visual effects supervisor preferred it that way because Mm. on top of a million other things he was doing composite shots and all these other things, it was more helpful to them to erase and to clean up and move around than it was to just be entirely digital.
0: Yeah. So
2: so it's a combination. It's really a combination of departments. It's like a band. I mean, I look at like a film is like a rock band or something. You have a guitar player Mm -hmm. and a bass player and a singer and a drummer and whatever other instrument. And everybody has to work together to create that song. But when there's a big divide between the bass player and the guitar player or the singer or whatever it's like they quit and it gets all fucked up and the the music sucks you know yeah (laughs) so so and that's what happens with films it's like other visual effects people don't want to talk to us or they don't want to be a part of it they want to do it and they want to do this and it's like that never works
0: yeah so i'm all for communicating yeah me too yeah absolutely hey i just wanted to speak about you getting heidi Klum ready for halloween each year as well how did this all come about because it's pretty amazing
2: she's great i love heidi she has wild ideas for her halloween costumes and we usually spend so much time and money making them that Mm -hmm. we after halloween we like collapse all of us like literally collapse because we always try to go in early to figure out what we're going to do, but it never happens. So it always winds up being some sort of emergency scenario uh, where we're up to the last night of, you know, building and, you know, going in and then doing this crazy thing. And then she wants to film it and put it on TV. So okay. you know, Like <laughs> we don't
0: need to talk about it at all. No, it's
2: cool. it just cool.
0: sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> oh, no, my God.
2: Jamie, you don't even know. I mean, this year she wanted to film it live the whole process, not only inside a New York City storefront, but also air it live. And when you don't sleep for four days, mm. you don't really look that hot so <laughs> or feel great. <laughs> you know, so. Oh, my goodness. But That's I bad. love Heidi and I uh, yeah. only had that job because Bill Corso was doing that job before. Mm-hmm. And uh, since the party was in New York and she was living in New York a certain period of time – Bill was like, I am so busy doing this stuff. Why don't you just hire Mike? So Bill passed that job to us, which was really nice. And, oh, that's uh, cool. and we've been doing it pretty much every year. And it's, and it's fun. It really is fun. I mean, we, we duplicated Rick Baker's thriller, Werewolf Makeup. And that was really an honor because that was like what got me into the industry in the first place. And uh-huh. Rick Baker is a genius and, and like the best makeup artist ever. And, like, even to duplicate that makeup is, like, impossible. And it was so hard to do. And I, I had to remember I told Rick, I said, hey, man, you know, like, we're doing this Michael Jackson thriller on Heidi Klum and, you know, don't kill me, you know. I hope, don't <laughs> rip it <laughs> Don't apart. kill me.
0: Don't judge me. Yeah, <laughs> don't judge me. So it's hard.
2: She doesn't have the same face as Michael and blah, blah, blah. And then yeah. he was really awesome and he helped he helped recommend, like, what to do. I sent him photos of me and, you know, Mike Fontaine had worked on it. I had sculpted the hands and the face with Mike. And and uh we sent pictures to Rick. And Rick was like, yeah, it looks it looks really good, guys. You know, like, it's, it looks awesome. But I think the ears, you know, maybe you can move them down a little. And we were like, okay, all right, thanks, man. And we looked at it and we're like – I don't know if he's right, you know? Is he right, you know? it's us look at his clothes. <laughs> so then we moved the ears, and we're like, oh, he's fucking right. know, oh, we're idiots. <laughs> uh, of course, Rick knows. Fuck, yeah. So we moved the ears, and that was, like, really cool and helpful of him to do that. And we not only did the werewolf makeup on Heidi that year, we also duplicated all, like, as close as we could anyway, with masks, mm. not makeup, masks, mm. for all the zombies, too. We, yeah. we tried to do some of the key like hero zombies as masks you know there's like a big blue bald tor johnson guy you know we did did that and we did this skeleton guy that tom hester designed and made at rick's at the time and we duplicated that and mike sculpted that you know and it was like we did all these we tried to even make the zombies look like rick's work you know so that was fun you know
0: (laughs) hard work but fun
2: yeah, that's usually how it is, you know. And it, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and, and that's how movies are, you know. And if younger people mm-hmm. want to do this kind of thing. It's like you—you you can do awesome stuff, and you can work really hard and kick ass and all that. But it's so draining. It's so much hard work, and a lot of the time, even if your budget is good, it gets eaten away. You know, so make sure yeah. you don't bid too low because it just dissolves. Mm. the money dissolves and you could see in the past of any makeup effects company like some studios benefited greatly and some studios went bankrupt and you know Mm. so it's it's really important to know what to bid and why and if they can't pay for it a lot of the time you can't do it
0: yeah it's okay to walk away
2: it's okay to walk away you know someone else Mm. maybe unfortunately gets to do it and maybe they have a better solution than I do or something or a better approach that could save money, but that's just not what I want to do.
0: Yeah. You know? And you got to love it, man. You got to love this job because if you don't woo, be torture. Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. You have to love it. I mean, I still love everything Rick Baker ever did. I still love everything Botine did and Kevin mm. Yeager and Greg Kahneman. I mean, it's like, I still look at that work that they struggled and made all these years and, uh, I love it. I can't get enough of it. I still love all of it.
0: Still inspired by it. That's very cool. Great.
2: You know, and all this people that a lot of the people that were working then are still working now you know which is Mm -hmm. even better for me because I'm a total geek you know and it's like (laughs) oh my god Norman Cabrera awesome I used to love his stuff and you know Bill Corso crap I used to put pictures of his stuff on my wall as a kid yeah you know and like all this stuff and you know oh my god Sylvia Nava is making the wig and she did everything for Rick Baker and it's just like I'm living a fantasy as it my childhood fantasy of still working with you know those artists who are still in the in the industry. And I have so much respect for all of them because I know how hard it's been all these years to do that. Yeah. You know,
0: that's amazing. So what have you got coming out that we can look forward to seeing? What have you been working on? Well,
2: probably the best job I ever had in my life was, uh, coming to America too. Woohoo! Yeah. It was really awesome. I mean, another Rick Baker, you know, genius movie, genius mm-hmm. design. And I have, to, I can't take any credit for really, designing any of those makeups other than a, a few new characters we did which are not in the original film but um mm-hmm. Rick was retired and you know doesn't have a studio anymore and the job fortunately came our way and you know we got the job and we tr- really tried our best to analyze everything in the film you know from every wrinkle every line everything and you know Eddie murphy's still playing all the characters and Arsinio is too and um, and that was awesome. I was so psyched to do that job, you know, because yeah, that was like it. my favorite movie, because it, um. that movie's like so funny. I love John Landis and it's like total Rick Baker and it has a combination of like a Dick Smith makeup that like Rick Baker did, you know? So it's like, mm-hmm. shit, you know, like this is so cool. It's like total fantasy as the best of every world for me, you know, and working with Eddie Murphy, you know, which oh, was really I it. crazy, you know, <laughs> but, you know, so the idea was going in with those approaches of makeups was like, okay, can we analyze every wrinkle and everything that Rick had done already? Mm. And, taken into the account that Eddie is physically older and heavier and he doesn't mm-hmm. look like that 25 year old kid anymore. Yeah. So we made a conscious choice to make the makeups look older as if those characters were still alive and still an aged like 30 years. Ah, cool. So, so we did that. So we aged everybody in the film according to Rick's designs and then added our own, you know, assumption of how old, how much older they would look, you know, are their hair grayer? Is their skin saggier? Is their you know, they fatter, you know, all that, (laughs) are they more bald, you know, all that stuff. So it's, I think it's going to be really fun and exciting and I, I hope people like it. And,
0: uh, I'm looking forward to it.
2: (laughs) It was really fun. And we did some really awesome new characters that I'm really proud of. And, um, I think it's just, it's just a cool script and it's, it's going to be a cool movie
0: that's awesome
2: it sounds like you're a kid in a candy store I
1: love it. <laughs> oh that was the
2: best that was the best and then uh and then we we're working on well we're working on batman now and we're doing some makeups for that i won't say what they are but you know, if you really care you can do some research and find out what's <laughs> going on but we're doing some really cool original uh, character makeups in the film and they're so exciting to do and it's a great exciting project to work on and the director is awesome his name is matt reeves he did all the Planet of the apes films the new ones Oh, nice. uh, and he's really cool. He's a fan of effects. He's a big fan of effects. So. Oh, that's nice. It's, it's really – it's been good.
0: I just want to know what one tool or product would you not want to work without?
2: What product? Uh, in the makeup trailer or in the studio? Either one. Okay. I love Chavant clay. I love Chavant soft tan clay, which a lot of people – I know they use medium – Mm-hmm. But uh, we developed kind of a way of sculpting that we use the soft material for certain things. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. we're like, oh, medium is really better for this. But the soft clay has a really great quality to it. It has a tendency to kind of move around and shift things really easily. And I like to use my hands a lot when I'm sculpting a makeup and
1: mm-hmm. as
2: little tools as possible. So, um, so that's something I wouldn't want to work without had to choose and probably in the makeup trailer i love to airbrush makeup, so i rarely mm-hmm. kind of hand brush and do that stuff which i also do but maybe after i've already airbrushed the bulk of the makeup yeah so i wouldn't want to be without an iwata so i use an iwata hpc or an iwata micron mm-hmm. uh, mostly the hpc and then i kind of break it in a way I don't use it traditionally. I break it in a way where I kind of rip the tips off of it and I s- expose the needle and then I pull the needle back a certain ex- certain length and then I, my paint is thinned a certain way and then I spatter and do all these things with like this kind of, you know, MacGyvered broken down, you know, airbrush. So uh, you take that
0: away from you and you're like, ah. Yeah, then I would suck. <laughs> it wouldn't be
2: good. You know, I can only rely on. The tools I have, you know, so what I've learned. On, awesome. so. But, you know, look, a lot of it is intuitive. Yeah. You know, so it's about adapting. And that's one thing I learned from Rick Baker. And that's one thing I learned from Dick Smith was like, if their plan A fails, there's plan mm-hmm. B. If plan B fails, there's plan C. If plan C fails, yeah. it's plan D. On and on and on. Just keep going. <laughs> yeah. There's no way to not do it. You know, there's exactly. always a way to do it somehow. You got to make it work, you know. So that's that's a good thing. So, if I didn't have those tools, I'd probably find a way to do it. But uh, but I like having them.
0: <laughs> exactly, those comforts. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly.
0: And who is the one person you'd like to hear on the podcast?
2: Oh man, that's everybody. Terrible question. Jeez, <laughs> so many people. All right, I'm going to be geek and go into the effects world, and mm. I would love—I don't know if it would ever be possible. I would love if Rob Boteen did an interview with you.
0: Dude, you're like the second person to say that. And I'm like, is this like the biggest challenge of my life is to try?
2: You should. I wish. I wish.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. I wish. Okay. I mean, I, I also, you know, all right, let's
2: go second round. Let's go second round. Because mm-hmm. everybody wants to hear Rob. I would say, I would say like really... Man. I would say like Kevin Yeager. Okay. I would love to hear Kevin Yeager do a long interview where you pick his brain and pry it open and really ask him questions that n- he's never been asked like okay like tell me about designing Crypt Keeper and Freddy and you know all Child's Play the original one
0: all that stuff. Oh, I would love goodness.
2: to just know some things, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've given me some homework, Mike. Thank do you it. very much. <laughs> Hey, thanks, Mike. It's been awesome chatting with you.
2: Uh, So good to talk to you and uh, hopefully we can work together again soon.
0: Absolutely. Awesome.
2: All right, Jamie, I'll talk to you soon.
0: To see more about our guests, go to our Instagram at The Last Looks Podcast or our website, thelastlookspodcast.com. If you want to keep up with new episodes being released, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, or any podcast streaming platform. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, share it. The Last Looks Podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro, the song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
1: That's a wrap, people.